Well, this morning, will you stand with me one more time? I'm going to read today's scripture passage. It's found in the book of Mark, the 12th chapter, starting in verse 13. It says, Later the leaders sent some Pharisees and supporters of Herod to trap Jesus into saying something for which he could be arrested. Teacher, they said, we know how honest you are and impartial, and you don't play favorites. You teach the way of God truthfully. Now tell us, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or shouldn't we? And Jesus saw through their hypocrisy and said, why are you trying to trap me? Show me a Roman coin and I'll tell you. And when they handed it to him, he asked, whose picture and title are stamped on it? Caesar's, they replied. Well then, Jesus said, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, and give to God what belongs to God. And his reply completely amazed him. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that your word brings truth, and God, that you can do amazing things. And I pray right now, as pastor comes and begins to share the message that you've laid upon his heart for us today. I pray that your word would pierce our hearts and God, that you would just do a work in our lives right now and that we'd leave, leave changed by your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Pastor Corey. God bless you. You may be seated and let me join Pastor Corey and say a big happy 4th or happy 5th of July. Uh, this is a day that's always easy for me to remember. This is the anniversary of my 45 years ago, I got the courage up to ask Becky out for our first date, and we originally were scheduled to be in Chattanooga, Tennessee this weekend, and um, of course, COVID-19 has changed a lot of people's plans, and I'm really glad to be here today because I feel like, I really do feel like I have a message for us um, to, on this 4th of July weekend from the Word of the Lord. A few years ago, I became fascinated with... Condi Rice, Condoleezza Rice as her name is, and I was out to lunch with a friend of mine from, as a pastor at First Assembly of God in Grand Rapids, and he asked me had I thought very much about Condi Rice and, you know, who she was, and I said, well, I knew she was a Christian, I knew that she had been Secretary of State for President Bush, and he began to share some things with me about her and her faith, and just really intrigued me, so I've read a couple of books about Condi Rice. I've also done some just trying to follow her in the news and things of that nature. And this week as I was praying and preparing and thinking about the two crises that are facing America right now, the crisis of the coronavirus and the crisis of racism that our nation is dealing with at this point. And then the potential third crisis, if something is not done and business can't get back to normal the way it should be, and that could be an economic crisis that we're facing, which is all a perfect recipe for a perfect storm. As I was thinking about Condoleezza Rice and I was thinking about the coronavirus, I went back to the days of 9-11, and I don't know if you remember this, but the days of 9-11, after that bombing happened, she says, I know I'd done everything that I could to protect the nation. I know that I'd done everything I could, that the president had done everything he could to protect the nation, but this was the first time that the nation had ever been attacked on the homeland since the War of the 1812, and thousands of people died on her watch. She talked about how that shook her, what that did to her life, and how they responded to that. And she went on talking about, you know, her response and the 
president's response at that time. I went back and I remember the song we just sang. It was the only time that I've seen our Congress in recent times be totally united. How many of you remember when the entire Congress, Democrats and Republicans, stood on the steps of the Capitol and they sang the song that you and I just sang, God Bless America? Do you remember that? That was a moving moment. And I've not seen that sort of unity happen in America since then. And of course, as a result of that, we see the fracturing of many, many things that once were taken for granted our country beginning to come apart. Condoleezza Rice goes on to talk about how that after the president made that famous speech in New York City where he stood on the rubble with that bullhorn and says, we hear you and the people that knocked down these buildings, they're going to hear from you as well. You remember that speech as well that he made. It was kind of an impromptu speech if you've read his autobiography, his presidential autobiography. That wasn't a planned talk. He just stood up and, and addressed those first responders that were standing there in the rubble. What you may not know, according to Condi Rice, is that they came back and the cabinet met. And they met and they gathered for a prayer meeting. And John Ashcroft, who we know and that has, is a wonderful man, was a great governor of, of Missouri, then he went on to become a senator from Missouri and then the U.S. Attorney General underneath President Bush. She says that the Attorney General, John Ashcroft, sat down at the piano and began to play gospel songs and they stood around the piano praying and singing these old hymns. In particular, one stood out to her, his eye is on the sparrow. And how that the president and his cabinet were seeking the Lord for wisdom and for direction. And I think at a time of crisis, all of us are looking for some direction and for some guidance. On the 4th of July, we celebrate the heritage of this nation. Not everybody will celebrate what you and I celebrate we recognize that there was something different about the founding of the United States. We recognize that the God of, that we serve, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who gave us the Bible, that these laws that we have today were based upon the scripture. There was a man who took a great interest in America that's still quoted today. A lot of people quote him, but I found very people, few people have actually read him. I took a course a couple of years ago on Alexis de Tocqueville's thought in his life he wrote the book, Democracy in America. But de Tocqueville also wrote about something that he observed in the American experiment and the American founding of this nation. That's a healthy thing. He wrote about individualism, not the kind of individualism that we're familiar with today, but an individualism that leads us to community. Let me just read you a bit of it. He said, individualism is a calm and considered feeling which disposes each citizen to isolate himself from the mass of his fellows and withdraw into the circle of his family and friends. That's an important statement right there. Withdraw into the circle of his family and friends. And with this little society formed to his test, he gladly leaves society to look after itself. In other words, he doesn't try to concern himself with other people's affairs. It's what strengthened the bonds of churches, organizations like the Rotary Club. It's what strengthened the bonds of what we know today as small groups that we meet with here called connections. But the individualism of our day has become more about myself, me, myself, and I. There was a book a few years ago out that when I read it, The Me Generation, I gave it to our then youth pastor to read and told him, I said, I want you to read this book and get back to me because it was dealing with many of the concepts that young people are dealing with today, talking about 
that their lives, just themselves. There's more to me, myself, and I. There's more to our lives than just what makes me happy. But we have a responsibility one towards the other. Crisis can cause us to go one of two different ways. Crisis can cause us to withdraw and just think about ourselves. Crisis can cause us to isolate and be selfish. Our crisis can cause us to think about our neighbor. It can cause us to think about our small groups. We're socially distancing here in the worship service. We're, we're wearing masks when we greet one another. We're using hand sanitizer. We're trying to observe all of the rules. I was at an event this week that Becky and I were invited to be a part of, and there was a comment that was made to us about how that many people were out and about, and you could see them wearing their mask. You could see them trying to socially distance not only trying to protect themselves, but trying to protect the people they were shopping with. But then there's another phenomenon. There's another phenomenon of the people who think it's a hoax or don't think it's true or don't think it's going to affect them, and they're not wearing masks, and they're, they're going in and they're coughing or they're sneezing, and they're not socially distancing. They're being brusque, and they're being rude, and, and it sounds like I'm being critical of them, and perhaps I am, but the point is is that they're not considered of the other person. Their individualism has caused them to think, and it's their freedom to think, it's their right to think under our Constitution, that they can think just about themselves. And if I don't want to wear a mask, I don't have to wear a mask. But I think it's pretty clear the way that the gospel calls us to live. The gospel calls us to be considerate of one another. The gospel calls, and I love the old King James Version, in honor to prefer one another, that we're to look out for each other, we're to take care of each other. De Tocqueville went on to say something else. He said these voluntary associations where people get together just to do good, people who organize just to do good, they become very communitarian. So when de Tocqueville, writing about America and democracy in America, it was much different than the type of, of democracy that was trying to be established in France that our democracy was leading us to think in terms of communities and to think in terms of what was good for one another, that we take steps as individuals and we make decisions that are good for everybody. A few years ago, a man in our congregation gave me a book called Bowling Alone. The book was written and published 20 years ago. Exactly one month was it published and came out one month before 9-11 happened. And what Robert Putnam in this book, Bowling Alone, documents is the fact that our participation as a society in the United States is declining as, we, as fewer and fewer people participate in their churches, as fewer and fewer people participate in clubs like Rotary or Kiwanis or something like that, as fewer and fewer people participate in group events. And he says it's destroying, now listen, this is important, that it's destroying or eroding the glue that holds America together, decreasing the range of our relationships, and it is lessening our sense of connectedness to our community. It's one of the reasons that Woodland Church has always said that we want to be a blessing to the community we live in. As I said Wednesday night in the message, if you were watching online, and I'd like to repeat again, in this event that Becky and I were invited to attend this week, only 100 people were invited for the reopening of Down River. 
so that it, we could observe what the governor had called for for public gatherings. But in this event for the reopening of Downriver, I liked what one of the speakers said when he said, you know, Brownstown, Taylor, Woodhaven, Flat Rocky, named all of the communities that make up Downriver. He says, we're more like one big city. We're more like one community rather than any individualistic little small towns. There is a sense that we are a community and we depend in America. Now listen, this is important. We depend in America upon voluntary association. We depend upon America of people voluntarily participating, except when it comes to paying for your taxes. And then we will make you pay your taxes if you don't pay your taxes, you know. That's the only thing, everything else in America, it's a voluntary association. Now you compare that with the Chinese. I've watched the Chinese handling of the coronavirus. And they've, if we're to believe the press, and I say that with a little bit of salt, if we're to believe the press, the Chinese have flattened the curve. The Chinese have gotten coronavirus under control, or at least the Chinese would have us to believe they've gotten it under control. But the way they've done it is by force of law, force of authority of their authoritarian government, that if you don't do what the Chinese government's telling you gonna do, you're gonna go to jail. You're going to be incarcerated. You may be in, not only in prison, but you might even be executed. Who knows with the Chinese? In America, we do it just a little bit different. We depend upon the voluntary participation of 300 million Americans to try and defeat the coronavirus. That's a pretty bold gamble, don't you believe? That's a big, bold request. And so some people say the Chinese way is better. I believe the American way is better, and not just because I believe America in America, but I believe in our Constitution. Which brings me to the second part of what I'd like to address in this message this morning. The other crisis that we're facing is not only a crisis of will I do what's right for my brother or my sister or my neighbor, my family when it comes to maybe wearing a mask and socially distancing and doing what I can to protect others. But what about the sin of racism? We're watching again protests. We're watching again in our city streets as people are marching and they're protesting. We've seen police officers who have been shot. We've seen uh, black people, Afri African-Americans that have lost their lives in Brunswick, Georgia, and Minneapolis, Minnesota. George Floyd, if you watch that video, it is a heartbreaking, heart-wrenching. At first, I couldn't bring myself to watch the video, but when I finally watch that video and you hear him crying out for his mother with his dying breath, you can't help but be moved and wonder what happened to Officer Chauvin, that he would keep his neck on the, his knee on the neck of that man while he slowly died. It brings me to a greater appreciation for the police officer from our church that was photographed in the newspaper downtown, kneeling and praying with a group of the protesters. And I was so proud that he modeled what the virtues and the calling and the life of this church is all about. In Detroit, where he was kneeling down on the street, he wasn't there in battle gear or riot gear. He was there showing what it meant to be someone who believed in our community and believed in the values that he was sworn to uphold and protect. Two years ago, Becky and I were invited to Washington, D.C. for a very special event. We had the opportunity of meeting with some of our senators and sitting in their offices and talking with them. We also took the opportunity to go on a nighttime tour of our national monuments. 
And as we went through one of our national monuments, I went to one that I remember my daddy taking me to as a small boy. And there at night, it was just totally different to look at the Lincoln Memorial, to work, look at the Martin Luther King Memorial, to look at the Vietnam Memorial and to see them illuminated by light, to walk around and wonder at the World War II Memorial. It was just such an awe-inspiring moment. But I remember as we stood in front of Lincoln, and I'm sure many of you have been there, we, Becky and I wandered over to the side, and I said, let's read his second inaugural address again. It's just to the right, if you're looking at the, uh, the statue of President Lincoln, you just go over to the right, and we stood there, and we read it again together. And in that, he said some things that I want to bring out to you today because I think they're very appropriate. He said, neither party, speaking of the North or the South, expected for the war, the magnitude or the duration which it has already attained, neither anticipated the cause of the conflict might cease with or even before the conflict itself should cease. <coughs> Each looked for an easier triumph and a result less fundamental and astounding. Friends, that's an amazing observation from the President of the United States. But it's what happens when you depend upon man's wisdom. It's what happens when you depend upon man's knowledge. It's what happens when suddenly you begin to depend upon only the wisdom that you can have to predict your way. We need the word of the Lord. And more than today, as I told, more than ever today, as I told the first service this morning, America needs the word of God. We need to look at some of the problems, whether it's coronavirus or racism or economy, whether it's family and marriage and divorce, whether it's children. We need to take a look at many of the social ills that our nation is facing that's been ripping us apart that we've been arguing about the same things for years and some of those things like abortion are worth fighting for because human life is sacred. Euthanasia is worth fighting for because the life of the elderly is sacred just as well. It's important that we know what the Word of God says. And if we limit ourselves to human intelligence, if we limit ourselves to human control, then the duration and the cost of the battles that we face, they will be much longer and they will be much costlier than what we expected. Lincoln goes on in that speech and says, both North and South read the same Bible. They pray to the same God, and each invokes his aid against the other. It may seem strange, listen now, it may seem strange that men should dare to ask a just God's assistance and wringing their bread from the sweat of other men's faces. You know, the Bible said it would be by the sweat of your brow that you would, make your, you would grow your food. The Bible never says anywhere that it would be by the sweat of another man's brow that you would grow your food. And yet as Lincoln makes these astounding observations, one of the things that stands out to me is that he says in this same speech, but let us not judge that we be not judged. Listen to that again. He's just given one of the great statements for the Civil War. Let us not, be ju let us not judge so that we be not judged. Friends, this is rich. He has just made an appeal for understanding. Both sides, the North and the South, they both read the same Bible. Both pray to the same God. Both pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Both sides reading the same Bible. How could they come to a conclusion so differently? What Lincoln is doing is what Jesus would often do. He would make an observance of a religious fact and then he would make a commentary on the social issue of how people would misuse the Bible for their own purposes. Again, 
the Bible never did say by the sweat of other men's faces, but by the sweat of your brow as a result of sin that came into the world. Lincoln goes on and he cites more scripture verses inside this text, inside this very brief second inaugural speech. It's a fascinating speech because Lincoln doesn't refer to himself like many modern day politicians do. When I listen to the modern, holiday spe modern politician speeches today, whether it's those running today, whether it was those running two years ago, or whether it was those running four years ago, each one of them tell us how they, they, they are the answer to America's problems. Friends, there's only one answer to America's problems, and his name is Jesus Christ today. There's only one answer to America's problems, and that's the word of the Lord, rightly interpreted and rightly, and rightly applied to our lives. Lincoln goes on at that same speech to say about northern white people, he said the southern people are just what we would be in their situation. He's saying to the northern people, he's saying they are what we would be if we were in their situation. In other words, if you'd grown up under their economic rules, if you'd grown up in their society, if you'd grown up with their culture, you would probably hold the same rules. So don't be arrogant. And I would say to you and I as followers of Jesus Christ, we cannot be arrogant in our faith. We cannot be arrogant towards unbelievers. We cannot be arrogant towards people of, of a party that we may not be a part of. We must understand that we have been shaped and by grace we have been molded by God's Holy Spirit and given the Word of God. The Bible will call us, listen, this is probably the most important statement I'll make today. The Bible will call us as a church, me as an individual, my family, and will call us as a nation to moral clarity without calling us to feel morally superior to somebody else. Does that make sense? It will call us to moral clarity without calling us to feel morally superior. Let me remind you of the illustration Jesus told of a tax collector praying, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And the Republican, not the Republican, but the publican standing beside him saying, Oh, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like this man. I'm not like this sinner. This is what I do. And Jesus said, which of them do you think left approved by God? Which of them do you think had their prayer heard? It's because the man on his knees had found moral clarity, but the man standing on his feet felt like he had found moral superiority. Friends, in all of history, you need to remember two things. God has a plan and God is in control. Would you say that with me? God has a plan and God is in control. Say that again. God has a plan and God has a control. The president went on to say in that second inaugural speech, the prayers of both could not be answered. That of neither has been answered fully. And then he made this amazing statement. The Almighty has his own purposes. Now, friends, that's not just pious language meant to be consumed by the public. This was by the man who would live through and led the nation in a war to bring and to heal those wounds together. But what you have to remember is this, is that when the war began, it was not a war about slavery. I remember a PhD sat down with my oldest son when my oldest son was much, much younger and still in, in school. As a matter of fact, he came to me, this, this PhD professor, and he sat down and he said, your son has a remarkable grasp of history. Andrew had this fascination with American history and 
read everything he could get his hands on. And I want to say thanks again to Woodhaven Public School for the kind of education they provided him and putting him in a, an advanced history class with a teacher that just called on to Andrew's love for history. And today, he's a historian serving our nation in the Army. But that PhD walked away and said, if more people would just grab, now this guy happened to become later the president of a major seminary. He said, if more people would grasp hold of American history the way your son has grasped hold of it, he said, I'm convinced we'd have fewer problems in our nation. You see, the war wasn't begun over slavery. The war was begun to preserve the Union. That was why the war began. But as the war continued, then the emancipation of the slaves in the South became an important issue, and it provided a moral impetus for the war. David Marshall and Peter Manuel, now you're getting something the first service didn't get because I ran out of time. David Marshall and Peter Manuel, in that wonderful book they wrote, The Trumpet Sounds, they made this observation that the Civil War was the price inflicted upon the United States for not dealing with what they knew they had to deal with, and that was the issue of slavery. And although the, the war wasn't begun with a, a desire to emancipate slaves, it was to preserve the Union. That's why the war began. Slavery became the dominant issue, and that's the issue for which the war is remembered for today. Lincoln would go on to quote in that speech, and I want you to hear these words from Jesus. I will read them from the King James as he did, and then I will try to give a little more interpretation to it. Woe unto the world because of its own offenses, for it must needs be that offenses come, but woe to the man by whom the offense cometh. Offense is temptation. Temptations are inevitable. Temptations will always be. There will be temptations for me to think I'm superior to somebody else. There will be temptations for me to think that somehow or another I'm better than somebody else. There will be temptations for me to look down upon other people. There will be temptations for me to be selfish and individualistic and that the only thing that really matters is me, myself, and I, or me, my family, and I, or me, Woodland Church, and my community. I love what John Wesley said when John Wesley was asked, where's your parish at? He was asked that as a snide remark. And John Wesley looked out at the people who asked him where his parish was at, and he said, the world is my parish. Friends, what was he doing? He was leaning into John chapter 3 and verse 16. For God so loves the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him would not perish but have everlasting life. This week, I read the words of a preacher that I was reading one of his messages, looking at what he said, and in those words, he says, you must understand that God only cares for the elect. God only protects the elect. Friends, I want you to know nothing could be further from the truth. God doesn't care just for the elect. God cares for every man and woman or child, whether they believe in him or not believe in him. Our job is not to try to separate between the two. Our job is to carry the love and the gospel of Jesus Christ to each and every single human being that we come in contact with. Can we give the Lord a hand of praise for that? The world is my parish. Then Lincoln concludes that speech with malice towards none and with charity for all. With firmness in the right, as God gives us to see the right, 
let us strive to finish the work we're in. Isn't those powerful lines? With malice towards none and charity towards all. The word charity has kind of lost its meaning today. In the King James Version of the Bible, it was translating the word agape. Agape, and aren't you grateful for that breeze? I don't know about you, but preaching up here, it's really nice to feel a little bit of breeze right now. But agape, the word translated charity, it's selfless love. It means whether you love me or whether you don't love me, I'm going to love you. I'm going to work for your good. Whether you hurt me or whether you help me, I'm going to work for your good. Whether you despise me and reject me or whether you accept me, I'm going to work for your good. That's the kind of love that God has. And that's the kind of love that you and I have as followers of Jesus Christ that God has given us to love one another with. And if we love one another with that love, then we can fulfill those words that President Lincoln said with malice towards none and charity for all. Would you say those words with me? With malice towards none. I know you got some mask on. I can't hear you. Let's try it again. With malice towards none and charity for all. Aren't those powerful words? And may God bring them back to our heart. Well, there's only one picture of that second inaugural address. And standing behind the president, you can see a man who, when he heard that speech, decided that the president shouldn't live any longer. And 42 days later, he put a bullet in President Lincoln's head. His name was John Wilkes Booth. I thought a lot about that. 42 days. It's amazing what one man can do. One man can douse himself with gasoline because he's mocked by the police and he's mocked by the courts as he tries to get a business to sell falafels from his pushcart in Libya. And after being humiliated for all those years, he goes and stands in a public place and he douses himself with gasoline and he sets himself aflame. And thus was born the Arab Spring and all the war that has followed since that time. You can ri argue rightly that it didn't accomplish anything good, but that one man set a flame going throughout the Middle East and North Africa. It's amazing what one man can do by stepping out of a crowd with a handgun and pulling it on Archduke Ferdinand and setting the flames that would lead to World War I. It's amazing what one man can do when he has an encounter with Jesus Christ and he's on his way. He's on his way to arrest Christians and to put them into jail and possibly even execute them. And the Lord Jesus Christ appears to him and knocks him off his donkey. And there Paul falls on the ground and says, Who art thou, Lord? And Saul becomes the Apostle Paul, an enemy of the faith. And today he's still marveled at, and the BBC just recently produced an excellent, excellent documentary on Paul's life and how he made such a drastic change to become a follower of Jesus Christ. It's amazing what men, one man can do for evil and one man can do for good. It's amazing what George Whitfield would do when he stood and he preached to the coal miners who were the hardest people to reach. And as George Whitfield preached to those coal miners, historians record how that you could see the tears making trails and leaving white trails on their blackened faces from the coal they had dug in the mine 
They were the roughest group, the hardest group, the toughest group in all of Great Britain, in all the British Isles. And Whitfield preached the gospel and they became followers of Jesus Christ. And revival began to spread in Wales and Great Britain. It's amazing what two men could do, even though they were ridiculed by the church because one of them by the name of Charles began to take bar songs and he began to put tunes that were lyrics to the scriptures and lyrics to, to gospel lyrics that he would put to the bar songs. And the ecclesiastical structures criticized him, publicly tried to shame them. Can you imagine, Pastor Mark, taking Christian lyrics and putting it to rock music tunes or country music tunes. Well, this is exactly what Charles Wesley did when he would write those lyrics. And we still sing those wonderful songs today. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. It's amazing what two men like John and Charles Wesley could do is they preach the gospel together. And historians also say they saved Great Britain from collapse because of the alcohol addiction that was taking place in Great Britain because of all of the gin. One man can do evil. One man can do good. The call today is what will you do? What will I do? In the words of President Trump, to make America great again. What will you do? What will I do to truly make America great again? Is America great because she has great armies? Is America great because she has the world's strongest economy? Or is America great because we truly do believe that as America is a land that is founded upon the word of the Lord? Is America great because we have charity towards none and malice towards all? Pastor Corey read to you a powerful verse of scripture that has made political scientists and made theologians shake their head. It even made the Jewish theologians shake their head. For when he said those words, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God, his reply completely amazed him. What he's recognizing is that God has given, listen, this is important. God has given three spheres of government. God has given the church, God has given the home, and God has given government. My job as a preacher is not to be a family psychologist. My job as a preacher of the gospel is not to be a politician. But my job as a pastor, the job of the church, is to inform both home, home government and both inform politicians in their role of government. And let me see if I can break that down for you a little bit. In the book of Exodus, chapter 20 and verse 1, the Lord God gave these people all these instructions. I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. And then God gives us a whole book. It's called Leviticus. And there are some of you here, there are more of you here in the first service, that you read the Bible through with me every single year. For years now, for over a decade, we've been almost two decades now, we've been reading the Bible through together every single year. And we always make the same comments to one another when we get to the book of Leviticus. How many of you know what I'm talking about? When you start reading through all those laws, sometimes about mildew, and sometimes you read some of the health laws, and those of you that love shrimp and oysters the way I love shrimp and oysters, you go, thank God we're no longer under that, that ceremonial law anymore. However, what you may not know is that our law was built upon the civic law of the book of Leviticus. It's what informed the construction of our Constitution. It's what informed the Bill of Rights that we hold so dear. 
It's why the enemy has tried so hard for the last hundred years to stamp out a confidence and a trust and undermine the word of the Lord. But as always, the enemy is unsuccessful because heaven and earth may pass away, but not one dotting of the I nor crossing of the T of the word of God will ever fail. Can you say amen to that? It will stand. So what am I called to do? God teaches us how in the book of Leviticus, if, you want to, if you're following along with the fill-ins, God teaches us how to live as one nation under God, indivisible with liberty and justice for all. Number one, I am called to respect government. I may not always agree with my government, but I'm called to respect government. That means I, I don't try to disparage my government. That means I don't try to overthrow my government. I'm called to respect it. Be a good citizen, the Bible says. All governments are under God. Insofar as there is peace and order, it is God's order. So live responsibly as a citizen. Listen to these words, important. If you're irresponsible to the state, then you're irresponsible with God. And God will hold you responsible. Romans chapter 13. If you're irresponsible with the state, you're irresponsible with God. Amy, could I have a bottle of water, sweetheart? If you're irresponsible to the state, you're irresponsible with God. What's the Bible saying there? First of all, I don't like to be negative, but let me do, deal with the negative first. It's not saying that every law or every politician is endorsed by God. It's not saying, as I apologize to one of the politicians that was here earlier this morning, for those of you who don't know her, that's my daughter Amy. It's... It's not saying that every politician or every law is endorsed by God. There are some laws, I can tell you, that are on the laws of this land, like the right to abortion. That's not endorsed by God. There are those who would like euthanasia for doctors to be able to decide when to end an elderly person's life or to end a crippled person's life. I try to keep up with these issues because I'm still legally classified as handicapped and disabled. You wouldn't know it because of God's healing grace. But I'm still legally classified that way. And at some point, something was to happen. There are some doctors in Europe that already have the legal right to say his life is no longer worth sustaining, nor is it worth the cost to society to keep him alive. No government should have that right. No government should have that right over the unborn child or over your life as you get older. But John Calvin says this about laws. It lays down, speaking about the book of Leviticus, it lays down a clear distinction between spiritual and civil government in order to inform us that outward subjection does not prevent us from having within us a conscience free in the sight of God. In short, Christ declares that it is no violation of the authority of God or any injury done to his service if, in respect of outward government, the Jews obey the Romans. And I'm sorry I said Leviticus, but this was Calvin's commentary on Matthew. What's he saying? He's saying that they are called to respect the king. Who is the king? The emperor. The emperor was one that was trying to put them to death. The government was one that gave Paul the right to go and arrest Christians. But he said we are to respect. Jesus never did lead an armed revolution. Secondly, the Bible doesn't prescribe a certain form of government. I've been very fortunate, Becky and I have been very fortunate to travel and to speak around the world and to be able to spend sometime weeks at a time in other countries living with people, sometimes in grass huts, sometimes in nice hotels. 
sometimes with government officials and sometimes with locals. But one of the things I can tell you, democracy as far as a republic like ours that we live in, it's the best form of government that's, a, that's around in the world. It's not a perfect form of government, but it's a great form of government compared to a lot of the places I've been. But God in his word doesn't endorse a certain kind of government. Theocracy that the Jews had is a lot different than what we have today. But the church and government have overlapping but distinct roles, and that's important. That's important. So when the founding fathers spoke about that government shall make no law in respect towards religion, they were trying to cut the church out of the public role. They were trying to say the government can't tell you what faith you have to belong to. And Jefferson's famous phrase about the separation of church and state was written to ensure that a Baptist pastor need have no fear of being arrested for preaching the gospel or his congregation be arrested for not being Episcopalian. You won't get that in most modern day schools and education courses today because people don't know that. They bought a line that has said that the church and the government should be totally separate. I have no desire to be a politician. I love being a pastor. But at the same time, it's my job as a pastor, it's your job as a citizen to speak into government to be sure that it's godly government. And when somebody tells you that we have no right to legislate morality, friends, when you tell somebody they can't steal, that's legislating morality. When you tell somebody they can't murder, that's legislating morality. You're going to legislate morality one way or the other. You have to decide whether you want it to be godly morality or whether you want it to be a kind of morality that Lincoln said that will prolong the cost and prolong the suffering that no man would have ever considered before. Secondly, I'm not only called then to respect government, I'm called to live respectfully and responsibly to my government. What does that mean? And we're running out of time here, so let me just kind of go through this quickly. It means that I want to be a good citizen. It means I want to participate. It means I want to vote. It means that <clears throat> if something is unjust, I want to protest. It means that if I want to make my voice heard, I have the right to protest. But I must protest in a way that is respectful, and I must protest in a way that's peaceful. I've got no right, <clears throat> neither does anybody else have the right, to come and burn down somebody else's business or to burn a police car, or to threaten somebody's home, or to call them names or anything like that, I have every right to protest unlawful, unjust laws, but I have no right to try and threaten and intimidate someone else. Does that make sense? That's called living responsibly and living respectfully. The scripture says in Micah 6, 8, Know, O people, the Lord has told you what is good, this is what he requires of you to do what is right, to love mercy, and listen, to walk humbly with your God. Mark, when I walk humbly with you, I'm walking humbly with God. Danny, it's good to see you. When I walk humbly with you, I'm walking humbly with God. Pastor Corey, if I walk cocky towards you, that's how I'm behaving towards God. You see, 
you know what a man thinks of God by how he treats his brother or sister. You know what a man thinks of God by how he treats his enemy. Jesus said to love your enemy. So be examples off to your neighbors. When If government gets off track, disagree. I've watched protesters burn businesses. I've watched people protesting against ICE and calling them racist, and they ought to be locked up, and that's just not true. Some of the people that I know that work in that area, they're not racist. One of them used to be a member of our church and has now moved away. A godly man, loved the Lord from my home state. Loved the Lord. Loved people. Loved immigrants. Married to an immigrant. And to hear people speak that way because maybe they have compassion towards immigrants, that's not the way to handle it. Listen to me. Anybody... Listen to me. Don't miss this. If you're watching on, listen. Anybody can scream like a banshee and call somebody a name. Anybody can torture business. Anybody can try to threaten their neighbor or threaten the police. But it takes men and women of grace that will help undocumented aliens find a legal way to stay in the United States. It takes men and women of grace who will help those children affected by DACA find a way they don't remember being born in Nicaragua. They don't remember being born in Honduras or Guatemala. They've never lived there since they were born there. They grew up in America and through no fault of their own, they've been in America and now they want a legal way. There's a way to do that without being cruel about it. And so when I see Christians that are working either for ICE or where they're working in churches trying to help people legally find a way to stay, I respect them both ways. I have little respect for those who go out and try to threaten and injure or harm others. And then we were finally said to pray for government at all times. My nation, my local government needs my prayer at all times. First Timothy chapter two, I know this is familiar to you, but listen again. I urge you first of all to pray for all people and ask God to help them intercede on their behalf and give thanks for them. Pray this way for kings and all who are in authority so that we can live peaceful and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. Let me remind you again, whether you liked Bill Clinton, George H.W. Bush, whether you liked President Bush, the next one, whether you liked President Obama, whether you like President Trump, none of them, none of them were equal in either goodness or savagery towards the emperors of Rome. And this is who Paul is saying, pray for, pray for, pray for. Although we may not always like who's in office and we may not like the party in control, as a Christian, we're called to live responsibly and respectfully. Vote our conscience. Work for what is right. Communicate in a way that communicates the gospel. And then quickly this morning, government is not God. God is king over all the earth. Can you say amen? Say it again so I can drink some water. God is king over all the earth. That's what the scripture says in Psalms 47 and verse 7. That God is king over all the earth. 
In Acts 10 and verse 34, I see very clearly that God shows no favoritism. In every nation, he accepts those who fear him and do what is right. And then finally, my ultimate allegiance is to Christ. I want to go back. It's kind of the reason I'm rushing. I want to go back to Condi Rice. I've asked myself how this young black woman born in 1954 in Birmingham, Alabama. At that time, Birmingham was known as Bombingham. How this young black girl at age six years old was learning French, was studying classical piano. Her father was the pastor of a small church in Birmingham. Her father and mother were passionate followers of Christ. Her great-grandfather was a slave in the South. As an emancipated slave, her great-grandfather became a pastor and started a godly lineage in his family. Probably the best book I've ever read on democracy was written by Condoleezza Rice. Then her personal story was also a very moving story. I wondered because I remember those days. That was the Jim Crow South. Deontay, I remember well the days of white restrooms and white water fountains. I remember the days when black people and white people couldn't eat in the same restaurant. I tell this story over and over because I don't want my children, my grandchildren to forget it. My two oldest grandsons have already heard it. When my father almost got in an altercation with a police state with a service station attendant who wouldn't let a young black boy use the restroom because it was for whites only. Daddy had to be restrained as a black father shielded his son so he could urinate. What gave Condi Rice and her parents such love for a Jim Crow South? When the Knight Riders would ride through their community shooting guns, you've heard her tell the story perhaps of her little friend that was in the basement of the church bombed in the 60s in Birmingham. She keeps a picture on her wall of her daddy giving that little girl her graduation certificate from kindergarten. From kindergarten. And on that Sunday morning, in a Sunday school class, some white racist bombed their church. What could give Condoleezza Rice such an amazing love for this nation, for its values, for what it stands for. Many people want Condoleezza to run for president. Condoleezza serves, I believe, with the Hoover Institute now, and also she's back again serving at Stanford as well. She's a world-renowned, sought-after individual. But she grew up 
in Birmingham, Alabama, in the Jim Crow South. And without any trace of bitterness, she talks about the love of Jesus Christ that can change a life. When I look at Condoleezza Rice, I look at somebody who grew up differently in life than I did. Somebody who saw the South differently than I did. Somebody who would have saw the statues of Jefferson Davis and Robert E. Lee. Would have saw them differently than I did. And rather than being bitter, she chose to be a part of the solution. She sums up to me what Mark chapter 10 and verse 45, where Jesus said, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. That scripture says two things to me. Condi Rice models them. It's how I want to live my life. I will serve and I will give. Will you say those two sentences with me? I will serve and I will give. Will you say it again? I will serve and I will give. One more time. I will serve and I will give. If we'll do that in the model of Jesus Christ, I can promise you, God will bless America and make her great again. Would you stand with me this morning? Hallelujah. Let's sing that together. I don't know if I started in the right key or not a while ago. Did I? Okay. God bless America land that I love stand beside her and guide her through the night with the light from above from the mountains to the prairies to the oceans white with foam oh god bless america my home sweet home oh god bless america Father, we thank you for this land that we live in. Jesus, I ask you that you would drill down deep into us what one conversation, what one life, what one decision can do for good or evil. I ask you that you would drill down deep into us that if we choose to do good and love justice and walk humbly, that we can count upon the anointing of the Holy Spirit that will break chains of racism, selfish individualism, and bring about the emancipation of a people and a nation to be what you've always intended for us to be. 
Would you help us? Would you drill down deep into us what one sharing of our faith story might do with a seeking heart, a hungry heart, someone looking for purpose in their life? Lord, would you cause us to truly believe not only in liberty and justice for all, but Lord, in forgiveness for all who put their faith in Jesus Christ. For it's in your name I pray. And everyone said, amen, amen, and amen. God bless you. I love you. I hope you enjoy the rest of the weekend. If you get a chance, I'd love to see you.